Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSB Magazine. You're listening to a new The Hacker Factory podcast with hacker maker, Philip Wiley. You're about to discover what the role of a professional hacker entails, the different specializations it holds, and what it takes to learn and become one. Enjoy the conversation as Philip and guests unveil the secrets of professional hacking a mysterious, intriguing, and often misunderstood occupation. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Wiley, the Hacker Maker. And each episode, I have a unique guest with a unique story on how they got started in the industry. And hopefully one of these stories will resonate with you. And today I'm very happy to have my friend Ray on. Uh, Ray's not, not only just someone from the community, we're friends and we met during the RSA conference and in uh, B-Side San Francisco back in 2019. And we've became good friends and remain friends over the years. So it's an honor to have Ray joining us today. Well, thank you, Phil. And, you know, I always cherish those bathroom selfies that we took, you know. (laughs) That's pretty funny. You'll have to share with our our listeners about the bathroom selfie. (laughs) Yeah. So we were at a pizza shop and uh, the pizza shop was lined in in, uh, white tile and it could easily be mistaken for for a bathroom. And so Phil and I, this was the first time we, we, we met and we had gone out to eat pizza. So we decided to take a selfie and post it up. And people were like, dude, you guys are taking a picture in the bathroom. And it was kind of awkward. It was like awkward selfie type of thing. But yeah, it wasn't a bathroom. It was a pizza <laughs> shop with bathroom tile lined all over the place. Yeah, the white tile definitely, I could see why people would think that. But that was a pretty, pretty funny moment. So but the pizza uh, was good, though. Yeah, it was. Really good. It was very good pizza. They, we had a lot of good food there because we were yeah. bug cried ambassadors during that time. We got to try a lot of different uh, Asian style cuisine while we were there mm, too. Yeah, so that, that was that was a good meal too. God, that was so good. Yeah, there was that. some there was some stuff there that I had never had before, and and you and Chloe, the the moments of you and Chloe was she kept trying to steal your pens and stuff. Oh God, uh, you know it. <laughs> It was my it was my favorite DEFCON pin, and she just wanted it. And, and I'm like, and she kept saying, "I'm going to seal it. I'm going to seal it." I'm like, mm, "Yeah, I don't think so." And so finally, I just, I just said, "All right, here, I'm going to give it to you because clearly you need this more than I do." And well, the ironic part is she takes it, put slaps it on her uh, on her bag, and then walks off. And it's like she's all happy and everything. Comes back the next day, and she lost it. <laughs> like all right well you, you're out of luck i give it to you it is what it is so yeah it was it was interesting we started calling her cheloe that day yeah um, that was so hilarious that was yeah. so funny <laughs> she was yeah she was not a happy camper with the cheloe when you when when jason when jason haddix actually jumped in and started calling her cheloe that was classic that was that was beautiful <laughs> yeah, that was very funny. She did, <laughs> she did not seem to like that, but we all got a good laugh out of it. That was a, yeah, that, was, yeah. that was a fun trip. You know, you gotta you gotta take the good with the bad. You're gonna steal my pin. I'm gonna call you Trey Loe. So you yep. know, it's, there's it, a it, price. It 
No, nothing to life's free. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we would probably should back up a little here, a little bit here. So, uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So, uh, it's interesting. I, I, I've been in the industry for what, 31 years, I guess. Is that what it is? Yeah. I, I started in 1989 and, uh, I started off as a software developer and, you know, I've been doing that for a long time, but about four years ago, I decided that I really wanted to dig into security and I started exploring it and I got hooked by the security bug and decided to make the change. And I, I can tell you that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like a super easy transformation because when you're, you're vested in a career for such a long period of time, and then you're trying to make a substantial change in the, in the way that your new career is going to be headed to, you're starting from ground zero. Now I was very fortunate. I was working at Microsoft and um, there was a, uh, a, a person there who saw potential in me and she gave me the opportunity to get training, level up, have an opportunity to go to conferences and, and learn more about the security community and how I can help. So that was a definite advantage because, you know, when you're in your later stage of, of careers, switching stuff becomes a little bit more challenging for you. And so she, she saw the potential and she gave me that opportunity. And I have to tell you, I ran with it. It's like I, all the training I could get that if there was any training that she was willing to fund, uh, I took it because you got to capitalize on it. And, you know, Phil, you know how expensive training can be. Like if you're looking at a SANS course, you're somewhere six to $10,000, depending on, the course and depending on travel. And so those are things that you got to capitalize on to kind of push yourself forward a little bit. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my thing. It's like, I, I really, I really wanted to be a security person and I managed to do it. It wasn't an easy thing, but I did it. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. Uh, so while you you mentioned all the training, uh, maybe we should kind of go, down that trail a bit of talk about some of the training, the type of training you take, you took and, and maybe the training you'd recommend for people starting out because you did get to do a wide variety of training, which most people that even have generous training budgets don't even quite get to touch that level. Yeah. of training. No, that's, that's definitely true. It's uh, I, I look back on some of the training I did and I, I, <laughs> I'm privileged to, to have been able to do some of the stuff because uh, you know, you look at, some of the courses I take and uh, let's see. So I did hacker house with Matthew Hickey and, you know, Matthew's Matthew's a prolific hacker. Uh, Great course. That was my foundational course. That's what actually allowed me to pop my first shell. And once I popped that first shell, that was it. I was, I was hooked. I I liked that. Uh, I I did get certified by eLearn security. So I took their, both their penetration testing student and professional courses and then eventually got certified uh, with their eLearn Security Professional Penetration Testing Certification exam, which was nice because it it was my first cert. It was kind of ran me through the the process of learning how to do a pen test and how to do lateral movement, how to document things, and it was it was just a really nice end to end course. And then some other courses I took were like the SANS SEC six sixty, and that was a my God, my brain melted on that one, and that 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 was a hard course. And that dug really deeper into a, a lot of the issues relating to advanced buffer overflow techniques and advanced bypasses. I took SEC, I took the Spectre Ops course, the Red Team Operators course, which in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have taken when I did, <laughs> but it seemed like I read the syllabus and it looked like a really good course to take. And I, when I took it, 
the one thing that stood out to me was um, it's it's definitely a very comprehensive course. But if you don't um, if you don't know Cobalt Strike or you haven't had any formal training in C twos, it's it's not it's not something for you to take. You have to spend the time to either understand how command and control centers work and some of the facets of uh, dealing with agents or beacons or whatever they want to call it. All the all the C twos have their own variations of nomenclature, but like unless you know that it, taking the Spectre Ops um, uh, Red Team Operator course, they call it at Adversary Tactics Red Team Operations, uh, it's, you're going to get lost. And that's what happened to me. I mean, I, while I, towards the end, I started to understand a little bit more, there were clearly people who had been doing this for a long time and they wanted to shore it up. And you can see they were far and ahead more advanced than I was. And so that RTO course, I learned a lot of theoretical stuff. The hands-on was a little bit more challenging. So definitely be aware of that. And then I, I did the, uh, the PWK, the offensive security, uh, you know, penetration testing with Cali, which is now called the Pen 200 and, uh, BC Securities Advanced Threat Emulation for red teams. And I will say that, um, once I took the BC security course, that's when a lot of the command and control center stuff started to click. And that course was really good. I enjoyed it more than the Spectre Ops course, mainly because it was like my first introduction to C2s. And it was, and they walked you through some of the, the things that make C2s valuable and why threat actors capitalize on that. And so I wish Spectre Ops would have done that or at least offered more of a, that intro course. But if in hindsight, if I would have done it, I would have probably taken the BC security course first and then maybe taken the Spectre Ops course afterwards because I probably would have had a greater understanding of, of how Cobalt Trek works. It's not necessarily hands-on because to get hands-on with Cobalt Trek, you have to work for somebody who actually has a license to Cobalt Strike. It's not, you know, they don't give it to you uh, and they don't have trial wear that you can really use. So, but I, I did learn a lot over the course of time. It's been, it's been really fun. So have you uh, taken the zero point security red team that's, operator course? You know, that's the, that's the one I'm taking right now. And I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, that's Russell Mouse's course so far has been really good. I was one of the early adopters to his course. And when it first kicked off, it was a little bit hard. Um, and you can see it, it, it's a typical thing with new courses. It has its, it had its warts, nothing wrong with it. It's just that it's a new course. He was trying to get the infrastructure working. There were some challenges with the infrastructure and stability and shared labs. And it, it, it was just in its early stages. So I went back recently as I started it up again, after I found out that he had uh, shifted over to snap labs. So now there's uh, personalized, uh, non-shared instances of your lab. And on top of that, he worked out something with help systems where you can actually learn, use Cobalt Strike and learn Cobalt Strike in the course itself. So that's great. I, I, so far, I've been learning quite a bit. Um, I'm, and I'm just, I'm enjoying it. I'm actually enjoying it now. Uh, when I first did it, it was a little bit more challenging to enjoy simply because there was stability issues. But now you can see that Russ has put a lot of effort into it and he's got a lot of those bugs worked out and the lab is in really smooth. It's, it's well worth the investment. I, I think this course is going to be a big differentiator for anybody who wants to become a red team operator. I'm not saying that you're going to be a red team operator by taking this course, but you're certainly going to have a leg up uh, in understanding how uh, somebody who works in a red team operates and also using some of the advanced technologies that these, um, these red team operators use day in and day out. You actually took, went through the course last year, 
So it was still the shared labs, but I was pretty interested since they're using Snap Labs now. And, and that's really cool that they are, you know, you have the option to use Cobalt Strike. I know they had the material for Cobalt Strike in there if you had a license or access to a license. So that's mm -hmm. that's really cool. A good way for people to learn because otherwise, you know, for over $4,000 to go take Spectrops training mm -hmm. to get hands-on Cobalt Strike and then not really be able to practice with afterwards. So that's, yeah, that's a great advancement. Well, one of the things I like about it is that the the lab time doesn't expire. So if you've taken the PWK or you've taken another online course, a lot of times they, they say, all right, from the moment you start, the clock starts ticking. And so with the PWK, for example, if you buy the 30-day course, at the moment you you turn on turn it on, you have 30 days and you need to finish it. And your lab time will expire in 30 days. The great thing about the uh, RTO course from uh, Rasa is that once you turn on the lab, you can turn it off. And so if you use half an hour of time, okay, well, you've consumed half an hour. And if, two, if you can't get to it for two weeks, no big deal. The same time still sits there waiting for you. So you're not burning time and, and having to, to make a bigger investment uh, every single month to try to complete a course. And, you know, we're all challenged. We all have workloads to do and we, we have responsibilities, whether it's work, family, whatever it might be. And so it was really nice when Rasa told me that lab time doesn't expire, man, that was fantastic. And so, yeah, I loaded up on some lab time and I haven't like the last time I touched it was, I believe last Thursday. And I just haven't had an opportunity to sit down and actually hack at it, but it's good to know that I still have whatever time I, I left off with last Thursday. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is nice because, you know, on top of that, people have budgets too. So mm -hmm. people like the, the pen testing with Cali can't, you know, not everyone's going to be able to go back and keep paying for another 90 days, another 90 days. And right. Yeah. So that's really good. Yeah. And you know, the, the courses like the PWK or pen 200, it's, it's a comprehensive course. It's really big. When I took it, it was, I think the PDF file was something like 800 pages. So to get through all that material is really, it, it, it's, it's a lot of work. And um, I, anybody who's taken that course, um, unless you are a truly very experienced um, pen tester and you just want to get the cert because you just want to do it, 30 days doesn't seem like adequate amount of time for the labs. I think, you know, you're, you're looking at probably a minimum of 60 days, maybe 90. And or I would like when I got it mine, I got 90 days. And even with then, because of life and and stuff, I was. I used all 90 days and I think it's important for folks to be realistic about it. And, um, you know, if you're going to sign up, take the time to look at your schedule and say, what's, how much can I actually invest in this? You read the write-ups and it's interesting. People say, yeah, I was getting up at five in the morning or four in the morning and I was studying for two hours. And then at night I was studying for another five hours. And I, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm not built that way. You know, Phil, I'm not built to be up. Yeah. On godly hours, I need sleep. You know, I like my you know seven to eight hours of sleep, and I do know that when I go to sleep um, late at night after being on the computer for quite a bit of time, the next morning I wake up not in a good space. I need to have uh, some time to decompress and either watching some TV or just talking with my family, and I, I can't be in front of the computer like I used to. So it's important for everybody to take time to uh, and be realistic with the amount of time they're investing. 
and it is an investment in time. You're going to have to spend time studying, create a consistent schedule and don't wait two weeks before between sessions. Don't say, okay, I'm going to start the PWK today. And then two weeks later, I'm going to get back to it on a lab because you'll forget everything you've done. And um, it's important to stay consistent and stay on top of what you're learning. Yeah, that that's great advice. And then the the time thing, staying up late, that's hard for me anymore. Because whenever I went through, uh, it was actually pen testing with backtrack when I went through it. So I went wow. through it like from I started I get because I got my first pen testing job in March of 2012, and I needed to learn how to hack. So that's part of the reason. I took the course. So I started probably about April or so and worked on it up until June of mm-hmm. 2013 when I finally passed the exam and I could stay up later back then, you know, because I wasn't into my fifties yet, but now <laughs> if I'm up, you know, for me, midnight is about as late one o'clock. I'm okay. But if I'm up to like 3 AM or something like that, then I feel like total crap the next day. I'm wrecked the next day if I do that. And um, I, I was doing that when I, so I've taken the exam twice. Uh, and, and for context, just so, so everybody knows, the exam is really hard. Yes. Uh, no matter what they, no matter what you may read, and you, you'll read a lot of people set talking about, oh, I passed the OSCP and here are the secret sauce to it. No matter what you read, um, every experience is going to be a little different. And I've taken it twice. And I can tell you that the first time I took it was hard. Um, I felt like I was pretty prepared and I had gone through all the typical things you can imagine, the hack the box and the try hack me and all these different services. And I thought I was pretty prepared uh, and it, it beat me and I wasn't, you know, I learned a lot and which was fine. And I kind of expected it. I would have been really happy if I would have passed in the first attempt. Um, but I, I also was realistic about that. Uh, the, but the other part was that I was spending an ungodly amount of time studying. Like I was really, really cracking on the books and I was wrecked mentally. I was, I was getting to the point where I was very fatigued. I was really tired. So when I didn't pass it on the first attempt, I, I, um, I held off and I said, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot it for it later on. I took a year off. I said, I'm not touching this. I'm, I'll continue to do, you know, my studying and my practicing and, it was less of a priority for me because I, I just didn't want to go through that again. And then I, uh, I did it again and I didn't pass it again. And I didn't feel, I didn't really necessarily feel bad. Um, the machines were definitely harder this time around. And I think that makes sense. And, you know, looking at some of the history with offensive security and some of the challenges they've had, unfortunately with folks who of course abuse the system, that's why now the course is proctored. And why you know offensive security had to re refresh their machines. There were there were challenges. There were some people who definitely decided to abuse the system. Their machines are going to be more challenging, and I would expect that as uh, as time goes on, you're going to continue to get more and more challenging boxes. And so when I read somebody says, "Oh well, you know, just do hack the box, you know, easy and medium boxes," no, I the boxes that I saw were very challenging. There were software that was very obscure. Uh, software that I had never seen myself, and uh, and I'd been around the block for a while. Remember, I was a software developer before switching to security, and a lot of the software I'd never seen in my life. And so, I think if you're going to do services like Hack the Box or Try Hack Me, that's great. That's going to give you really good practice. But try to go for the obscure boxes. Uh, the boxes that TJ Null, for example, is offering now. He's 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 updated his list are really good. 
try to focus on those, but also look at the hard boxes. And I hate to say it, but even some of the, in, what they call the insane boxes on these services, because they're also going to help you with the more obscure software. So um, if I was going to do, like if I, if I said, I'm going to take my third attempt, I probably, I, I, I know my path. I would go and take like TJ Null's list again. I would definitely do it because there's, there are boxes there that are incredibly valuable for you to know and understand how to, how to use. And they were representative of what I saw on the exam. But then I would also complement that with taking some of the more harder boxes on Hack the Box or Try Hack Me that I know would offer me those obscure services that most people probably won't see day to day. Yeah. What do you think about, have you tried out any of the proving ground boxes? Uh, I tried some of the proving ground. And so, so proving ground is mixed. I have mixed emotions about that. I, I think some of the boxes are fantastic. I've done, I did that for quite a bit of time. Uh, I actually paid for the service cause I wanted to get the more advanced boxes. So I think what's happening right now is that OPSEC is going through some growing pains with proving grounds and the stability is kind of challenging. Sometimes it's hit or miss. It's hit or miss. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. The majority of times it was okay, but you know, when you're, you're there and you're trying to focus on learning for an exam uh, and a very important exam that's going to give you a certification that could be career changing, you, you need that service to run. And I, and I had conversations with, with OPSEC about it. I, I, I'm very fortunate to know some people at OPSEC in pretty senior positions. And so I reached out to them and, and I was pretty direct about my, my concerns and they work to address it. That's the good thing about it. I will say that OPSEC is working to address it, but they're, if you really think about what they're trying to build, they're trying to build what Hack the Box is right now, at least for their students. And that's hard running an infrastructure that, uh, that has to spin up VMs on, on, on a moment's notice and then keep everybody somewhat secure and keep the service running and pay for cloud, uh, you know, cloud usage and all that fun stuff. That's, that's hard. So I know they're challenged with that, but ultimately I think they need to really make that service stable. And for me, I think they need to create private instances, especially for students. One of the things that I, I really dislike is going on a service where I have a shared box and seeing uh, littered exploits. And then you know that your this box has been pounded by somebody. So the, the challenge there is that if you run an exploit because you know that should be working and it doesn't work, then you have to figure out, well, is it my exploit that's not working? Is it the box that's in an unstable state? Did I do something wrong? And that makes it harder for you as a professional to try to determine what if, whether the path you're taking is right or wrong. So I don't know. The way I look at it is, this is one of the things I loved about eLearn Security. Their, um, their Hera Labs, uh, and Hera's H-E-R-A, Hera Labs, they were, they were uh, private instances. You spun up Hera Labs, and you were attacking your own instance of a box. And you weren't sharing it. And so you knew that if something didn't work, that was on your end. And in worst case scenario, you restarted it, and if it didn't work again, then you definitely knew something was on your end. Yeah, so you had that luxury. And I don't, and I, I like that with some of the services out there. Hack the Box, for example, does do private instances, but you have to go VIP plus. Uh, try Hack Me. I don't believe they do it, but they do do it. I think if you get some of their more advanced labs, uh, what do they call it? Like Hollow Live and, uh, and Throwback. I think those might be, I don't remember, but ultimately those having the private instances will definitely help you out. 
in, in validating the work that you're doing and making sure that uh, your, your, your exploits are either working right or you're making a mistake. So that's kind of the way I look at that. I, I think Proving Grounds has definite potential. And I wish they would take some a lot more of their um, their OSCP exam boxes and label them as they. I think they did this before. They actually had a section that was like old OSCP exam boxes. I would love for them to do that because that way I can kind of compare myself to between now and what was way back when and say, all right, am I making progress or not? If I can compromise one of their old OSCP boxes, that gives me a different level of confidence when I'm going against some of the new stuff. Yeah, that would be be nice if they would give you the private environments like that, because I know one of the things I kind of experienced when going through the OSCP, you know, there was times that someone had done something to that box and mm -hmm. it was easier for you to exploit. And it wasn't always necessarily because things weren't working, but right. maybe things were working that shouldn't have been working or wouldn't have been if you someone else hadn't already mm -hmm. exploited previously. No, for sure. For sure. It, it And the other thing that, that I, you know, what I think people need to realize is that um, if you're going to kind of progress into the pen testing arena is you really have to shore up on the web application pen testing. Uh, that's, that's what I'm seeing more and more. And it ties a lot into the exams that I've taken. It ties into the, some of the boxes that I've seen on these services. You know, we get very fixated with the network, uh, network pen testing, which is, which is interesting. Um, and you're going to find plenty of opportunities there, but the other opportunities I see are for folks who become very savvy on the web application pen testing side because as more companies move to the cloud, they're going to see more need for that. You're going to have to have the skills to say, how do I find that ingress point into this cloud, this cloud infrastructure through a web application? It's, it's going to be harder and harder for companies or for pen testers to find really good ingress points. And it's not to say they won't. Now, there's a lot of, lot of research being done right now on how to compromise cloud services. And I think like even recently there was research that was discovered on AWS. Was it? No, it was Azure on uh, a vulnerability on how to compromise it, uh, your Azure. And those things will happen. But I think they're fewer, they're, they're, they're fewer and far between than they were in the old days when companies had, you know, 20, 30, 300 data servers in a data center. And they were managing it by themselves and a misconfiguration, a misconfiguration sat there and you were able to say, oh, guess what? Hi there. You know, now it's, you got to find alternate routes. Yeah. And I think it's very helpful too, because it's, it's helped me a lot in my career because there's a lot of times you're on a network pen test and maybe they've got the systems patched or they're really hard mm -hmm. to get that foothold. But a lot of cases, some of your applications that are used to manage IT related applications or security applications are using like some kind of Java server, like mm -hmm. Apache Tomcat or Red Hat JBoss. And if you're able to exploit that, that may be your foothold into the, the system. So I do definitely agree with the, the, the web part. And then just kind of hearing some, some people's experience with the OSCP saying that really helped them to understand the web pen testing piece when going through that exam. Yeah. Was, you know, it's, it, what reinforced this as well is uh, just yesterday I was doing a, uh, I was showing a colleague of mine how to do a Google dork. Um, she was looking for all PDF files on our company website and, um, but she was going manually and I'm like, here, just use this Google dork. And she, she, she thought I was joking with her when I said Google <laughs> dork. I go, no, no, this is, this is a legitimate thing. And, um, and, you know, I, I just went to ExploitDB and I said, all right, what is, what's the syntax? And, you know, 
Uh, and then I showed it, to, I showed it to her and another, another colleague of mine and they were like shocked. They're like, Oh my God, this is real. I go, Oh yeah. Yeah. And then I, it was funny. I pointed her to one that said Adobe cold fusion eight. And I said, see right here, this is probably somebody who's trying to find the uh, cold fusion administrator page on Adobe cold fusion eight, because I, I, I recall there being a vulnerability there and they were both sitting there like, are you kidding me? People do this. I'm like, well, yeah, that's just part of, you know, the way they, they find vulnerable services. And so the majority of them though, what was interesting is the majority of the Google dorks were either looking for doc files or PDF files, but there was a, the, the other half was looking for vulnerable web services. And so that's just a testament to how, how important understanding, uh, understanding how to get ingress in via an application is. It's, it's like, if you can find those low hanging fruits that get you in there and you can drop a web shell as a pen tester, that's gold. It's now it's not gold for your client, obviously, you know, they're not, but hopefully they'll be happy that you found it and not a bad actor because uh, the last thing, uh, the last thing that your client wants is that uh, Microsoft did a, an article, I think it was last year that dug into the pervasiveness of web shells. And obviously, you know, the SharePoint, the, the, the SharePoint server issue was big web shell stuff that was going on there. There was a vulnerability in it, but that, I think that came out before the SharePoint vulnerability that led to all those web shells. They were just talking about the pervasive pervasiveness of web shells. And it, you know, if, if you've ever used a web shell, yeah, those things are pretty powerful nowadays. Uh, there's, there's some creativity in there. It's, it's cool to be able to use it and know how to drop it in there and how to best leverage it. And, but you have to know how web apps work and you have to know how to compromise them and you have to know how to, how to leverage them. And nowadays, when you start looking at web apps, they're no longer these monolithic apps. I mean, you're going to still have a lot of those sitting out there someplace, but new modern apps are going to be uh, everything from, from progressive web apps that are single page applications to uh, my, you know, apps using microservices that are split apart and containerized to APIs that you need to learn how to scan and compromise in some fashion. And all these things are new and I, I don't I don't know that I call them exciting, but yeah, I'll definitely say they're new. And uh, it's going to force, I think it's going to force pen testers to kind of reevaluate a little bit how they're going to get into uh, into their customers. Yeah, when you mentioned Google Dorks a while ago, I was, I was kind of thinking too, did, uh, did you show them how to view source? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you got to remember, I'm not in Missouri, okay? So I don't need to worry about that. Yeah. That was so hilarious. Boy, there was a lot of good laughs over that. Yeah, you know, and the, and the funny thing is that that's the, it doesn't even take a security professional to, say, to tell somebody view source is not hacking. I mean, I... I was doing view source back in, got it in the Netscape days. Yeah. And, and that's to show you my, how long I've been on the net. Uh, and, you know, I think I'm pretty sure Netscape had view source back then. And so to say that somebody doing view source and looking at data and saying, Oh, here's, here's some social security numbers. And guess what? And I don't know all the specifics of it. Um, you know, I'd like to see all the specifics. I'd like to see what I'd really like to see what their head of it or head of development, you know, is claiming was this, uh, what was it? What do they call it? This reverse reversing or unencoding or. They're, they, yeah, they're they, referred to it as decoding or something. Decoding. The, the hackers decoded. The, what did the they sword. decode? It, it was basic 64. <laughs> it may have been base 64. Well, yeah, if it's base 64 and somebody says, you know, let me decode base 64. Is that hacking? 
No, I yep. don't. Not that I know of. If it's publicly available data, it's there. You know, this is not somebody going into your system and saying, let me poke around into your database. This is like right there. But anyways, yeah, such is life when you have uh, you have civic leaders that clearly don't understand technology. Yeah, they think of Beto O'Rourke can do it. They can too, I guess. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is what it is, you know. Yeah, pretty interesting, but yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, I think there's opportunities for um, for the new generation to hopefully educate um, these leaders. Uh, you know, and there's always going to be, uh, I call them political agendas. You know, there's always going to be these opportunities for, for even in, even people who are versed in technology to conflate what the issue is and turn it into something that it's not. And that's not to say that, um, that this won't happen again. I, I, even with somebody who understands technology, uh, I think in this case, perhaps the governor just didn't like the newspaper. And that's from what I've read, it seems like they've had history before. So maybe this is an opportunity for him to kind of attack them for doing something like that. God knows. I, you know, it's, everybody has their thing, but yeah. hopefully in the future, the new generation will be a little bit smarter and not, not, you know, not look kind of silly saying, yeah, view sources hacking. God, uh, wait, wait, let me, let me go on restream and view source here and, <laughs> oh phil i just hacked i just hacked restream because I, I i did a view source look at that oh my god they're using keyframes they're using a keyframe keyframe loader spin oh that's it oh no <laughs> you're revealing my secrets yeah that's it <laughs> yeah i can see your door opening by my secret code right now <laughs> anyways <laughs> So uh, if, if you're, you know, for someone is starting out new, what would you recommend for them if they weren't, were wanting to become a pen tester? Yeah. It, so the first thing that I would recommend is um, they understand what they want to be in security. Here's the thing. I think a lot of people look at offensive security as this, this shiny new, lack of a better term, this sexy thing. This like, oh, this is where all the cool kids are. But security is, is so vast. There are so many moving parts in security and so many areas to explore. And I would say, first thing you want to do is kind of get a, get a map of what the security landscape actually looks like. Because remember, there's threat intelligence. So you have threat analysts, you have incident responders, you have reverse engineering uh, experts, you have malware analysts, um, you have, a, of course, penetration testers, you have web app penetration testers, you, uh, application security engineers, DevSecOps, uh, red teams, purple teams, green teams. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many different areas of security. If, if offensive security is something that really gets you excited and you do want to go into pen testing, then I think the first thing you want to do is kind of take a, I would take a course. I mean, the cyber mentors course is fantastic. I, I recently took it. Um, and I, I wanted to get a refresher on some of the things that I had learned when I first took the e-learn security course. And I took the e-learn security course, Shoot, when did I take it? I'm going to say back in 2018, maybe. So I wanted to take a refresher, and the Cyber Mentors course was fantastic. It it was very thorough, and I learned some new stuff too, which was kind of cool, like man in the middle with uh, IPv6, and that was neat. So, and for the price point, I it, yeah. you can't beat it. I mean, seriously, it's like he's giving that course away pretty much. And so, thank you, Heath, for doing that. I appreciate you. Uh, so that's why I'm I'm more than happy to give him kudos on that. Then yeah, I think, yeah, go yeah ahead. I do really admire people that try to keep training, you know, affordable for all. So that's because a lot of training is not cheap. No, it's not. And, and, and so 
I would say start with Heath's course and see how you feel about it. You know, the Hacker House course is also a very good course, a little bit more expensive, but if, if you're if you're budget conscious, Heath's course is is amazing. The the breadth of coverage of material is it just it floors me. Everything from you know the basics and foundational networking stuff to all the way to Active Directory enumeration and exploitation, and he even walks you through building an Active Directory lab, which is crazy. So all that time. Uh, all that stuff takes time and effort. And so uh, how much, I don't even remember how much it was, but I know that it was, I don't know, I, I think it was under $50 for the course. And that's a, that's a hell of a price point for that, that breadth of material. And then once you're, once you've taken a Heath course, uh, you know, of course he offers a certification exam and you can take that. Then, then you can start exploring other things too. I mean, you could take the, uh, the pen 200 from uh, offensive security and uh, and then eventually look to take the OSCP. And so the OSCP is still still viewed as kind of like the gold standard of offensive security certifications. It is a very hard exam. You just have to be very well prepared for it. Um, and then and then from there, there's just there's so many other courses to take. It just depends on which route you want. One of the things I would recommend is doing bug bounties. So if you have the time and you're able to commit to it, spend time doing bug bounties. But go into it with the mindset of that you're not going to find stuff. You're not going to find stuff on a regular basis. Why? Because you have to build those skills. And none of these courses were, are going to teach you all the skills needed to find these obscure bugs in the sites that are part of the bug bounty programs. The when you see somebody who says uh, who when you read about somebody who's earned a million dollars doing bug bounties, just know that those people have invested a tremendous amount of time in learning small skills that you will not have right now. And they've learned, they've, they've learned how to automate a lot of their scannings to find the low-hanging fruit and get it out of the way so they can focus on more, um, more interesting areas and perhaps get bigger bounties. But it's taken time. They didn't over, they, it wasn't like an overnight thing for them. The million-dollar earners did not win that in, you know, in a month of bug bounty. It took them years to get to that point, to develop the skills, and learn the nuances of apps so they can get to the point of earning that money. But here's the thing. If you, if you dedicate the time to it, you will learn. And the other thing is capitalize on some of the resources out there like Try Hack Me and Hack the Box and, and try to learn from them. Now, go in there knowing that the boxes, some of them are going to be, they're going to be purposely vulnerable and they're going to be purposely obtuse in terms of what type of vulnerability you're going to find. Some of the things you're going to see, you're going to be like, yeah, this is not real world. There's just not. Some of them will. Uh, but these companies, um, they're in the business of keeping people engaged in really cool puzzles. And that's what they are. These boxes are really cool puzzles. And so you, you just want to go in there knowing that you're going to be um, playing really cool puzzles. And then if they have specific tracks that focus on, let's say, offensive security, then you're going to probably find some more realistic examples of boxes you can compromise. And then, you know what? There's something to be said for freelancing. Everybody talks about, oh, I need to get my pen tester job and I need to work full time. Yeah, you're, you're right. I think if you want to go down that route, eventually you're going to need to do that. But make sure you network, network with folks in the industry and demonstrate that you can actually do pen testing, even at the beginner level. Uh, the, my first pen test was a freelance opportunity that was given to me by David Evenden. And he saw an opportunity for me to do it and he mentored me through the process. And, uh, you know, I asked a lot of questions. 
but he gave me my first shot at doing an actual pen test. And I think that was an important step for me. A, an actual pen test is very different from any course you'll take. Um, you have to be, there's so many variables that you have to consider. Uh, and ultimately the biggest variable is ensuring the business continuity for the customer. That's the biggest thing that you always have to protect. And so it's, it's different than if you do a hack the box, because if you blow up a box on hack the box, all right, well do a reset, you know, uh, customers don't typically have a reset and you don't want an angry customer because you decided to launch, uh, some, I don't know, some random exploit you found on GitHub and guess what? It blew up their boxes or worse, compromised their server. So you have to be very careful. But spend the time to understand these things and understand what your limitations are and then build networks. Networks with people who are in the industry and then develop that trust so that they bring you into the fold and um, we'll give you that opportunity for your first shot. And then once you get the first shot, then you're golden. Great advice. And, and back to that, you talk about the freelancing because once you know how to do a pen test and you start getting interviews for pen tests, then you're going to have a lot better likelihood of getting a full-time job. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you know, you've been, you've been around the block quite a bit on pen testing, Phil. And so you know how hard it can be uh, for anybody to try to find a pen testing job. And, you know, I, I know that like for me, I, I believe in tenacity. Uh, I, I'm, I just go out there and try to do things, but I also know that there's a lot of challenges for folks nowadays. Uh, there's, I call them I call them gatekeepers, and we do have a lot of gatekeepers in this industry, which they want people with, uh, well, they want them to have the OSCP, and they want them to have the G pen, and they want them to have this cert and that cert, and that. And so, in order for you to have the job, you have to have five certs and 25 years of experience, and you know, and you're like, what? And it's <laughs> it, and and it doesn't it doesn't work that way. So building the networks will definitely help you. Uh, that's going to help you with your visibility uh, and talking to people. If you can go to conferences, network. Don't just sit there and say, I'm going to take in an event and that's it. I'm going to sit and watch talks. It's good to watch talks. But, you know, it was interesting. Phil and I were just talking about this right before we started recording this. And one of the things we both love to do is go to events and have conversations with people because that's how you build your network. And in many cases, these are people that you're only going to see on a limited basis and you want to keep in contact with them because you can always go back and look at videos. Videos most of the time are recorded for almost every event that I've ever been to. But that opportunity to sit down with somebody and, and granted we're in COVID time, so that's a little bit more challenging. But once it opens up, the opportunity to sit down with somebody and have a conversation and share some food or share a drink or something like that, that's invaluable because that's how you build a relationship person realizes you're a human being and not somebody that's on, you know, uh, I don't know, called dead sloth on a Twitter handle or something like that. <laughs> and they realize, Oh, this is actually a human being. And that's how you build that, uh, that relationship. You build that affinity towards each other. So definitely take the time to build your network and go out to user groups if you can. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. I mean, my, anymore when I need want a job, you know, I just network, I reach out to my network and people refer you. That's a good way to get past, the HR firewall because I've had jobs before mm -hmm. where the bank I work for now, I just got the job and I had applied to another bank, had OSCP, plenty of experience and didn't even get called for an interview because I just went through the traditional upload my resume and apply, but then they contact me a year later. And so, yeah. And, and this mm -hmm. is, you know, I had, you know, quite a bit of experience. I had the SANS GWAPT cert. I had the OSCP. 
and had like five years worth of consulting experience and didn't even get called at that time until like mm-hmm. a year later. And, and the job that I got instead of it was because I met someone at a Dallas OWASP chapter meeting that worked for the company where I'm at now. So yeah, we've got openings if anyone's interested and I passed along my resume and ended up getting a job through there. So yeah. And you are a prolific networker. I can say that Phil, you are definitely a <laughs> prolific networker. So yeah, I think the networking is going to be one of the critical skills and I know it's hard. I, I can't say that it's easy for everybody just to go ahead and get out, put themselves out there. I I'm, I'm the opposite. I, I call my, I like to say I shake hands and kiss babies. That's what I like to do at the events. And I like to go out there and network and meet people, but it's not for everybody. Not everybody's going to be able to just go up to a random stranger and introduce themselves and have a conversation. Uh, I listen, when I was in high school, I couldn't, I couldn't go up to anybody. And I, I had a hard enough time going up to a girl and asking her to, to dance at, at like the school dance, let alone introduce myself to anybody. You know, it was just, it took a lot of effort and not everybody, gets to that point where um, they're going to be able to have that openness and that communication. Some people, it just doesn't, it's not natural to them and they shouldn't be forced to it. But if you can start work, if you can work to build the network, even in gradual ways through like user group meetups are great because there you're, you're not in, you're, you're not in this massive, this massive event where it could be intimidating, could be overwhelming. User groups are a little bit more casual and it gives you more of an opportunity to have authentic conversations. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, if, if anybody's out here who is that type of extrovert person, put yourself out there. Go out there. And if you see somebody who's sitting there by themselves and they're not talking to anybody, go have a conversation with them. You never know who that person might end up becoming. Um, that person could become a very influential person in your life. And it, it's important to to build those bridges. And so... Put yourself out there. Give somebody a give somebody else a break, you know. And uh, you might be surprised. I've met some great people like that. People who you could see were like they were just sitting there. They didn't. You could see that they were uncomfortable being in that environment. And then when some when I came up and started having a conversation, you could see that they felt at ease. And now they felt like, oh, cool, okay, I can talk to somebody about the things that I do, and it's important. And that's that's. That's, that's one of the best parts of these events. Definitely. I would recommend that to anybody. Yeah. And good for sharing that too, as well, that you used to be shy and the same thing with me. I just used to be really shy and I went somewhere. I just kind of stood off in the corner by myself, but you know, Mm -hmm. once you kind of get going to these different user groups, conferences and different meetings like that, and you get talking to people, you just get to where you really enjoy it. So people out there that are kind of shy, you know, there is, there is hope because I mean, (laughs) <laughs> you got two people here that, you know, we go out and we, we network like crazy and talk yeah. to people. So, I mean, there's, there's hope there. And especially when you're among your own kind of people, because one of the things you have to stop and think about, go back to high school, you know, maybe you didn't fit in with the popular crowd, but it's like, you know, mm-hmm. we go, we go geek out with a bunch of other people that are into security or hacking or coding or something. When you're among your people, it's a little more comfortable and people, tend to try to help make you more comfortable that way. It's just totally different because a lot of other groups, I, I just don't do that with. Yeah. Your tribe of hackers, huh? Your tribe of yeah. hackers. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marcus, that was such a great idea. He, he did. I love yeah, it was. Books. It was such, such a great idea. Such a great person too. Yeah. He's a wonderful person. 
Yeah, I've missed getting to see him. This had got to see him since before the pandemic. I guess 2019 was the last time. Yeah, we'll get to see him soon enough. Yeah, we'll get to see him soon enough. Yeah, we'll get to see him. And then I get to. I'm looking forward to seeing you, so that way I can go powerlifting with you. So you know. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you. Seeing you as well. I've missed seeing people. I mean, that's even like our friend Don, Don Donzel. I didn't get haven't got to see him since 2019. So a lot of people I hadn't seen in a while. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting out a little bit and uh, having those those meetups and catching up with friends and and just a general just a general fun. I mean, I, I will say, while events can be challenging and they're tiring, especially if you're speaking, like I get I get so nervous right before a talk, no matter what. And I've given so many talks, but even to this day, right before a talk, I get nervous. I have self doubt. I'm like, oh, am I going to give a good talk? Are these people going to hate it? And then they're going to put it on Twitter and then I'm going to look like a, a total fool and my imposter syndrome kicks in a hundred percent. And then I deliver it. And then once it's off my chest, then I'm like, okay, and then I can be normal and I can just go have fun and talk to people. And it's, I miss those days. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for joining me. It's been great having you as a guest and great to catch up and uh, yeah, same here. Same here. It's been it's been a day. I did my Twitch stream today, and <laughs> I had technical issues. So I was like, "Oh God, please don't let this be another one." You know, it's like I'm glad this this went really smoothly. The internet's working nicely, and uh, and things are just working great. So I'm happy about that, and I'm glad we had a good session. I'm glad nothing went went south on this one. So that's awesome. That's good. I got my I got my stream stream tonight at 7 p.m. Oh, nice, awesome. Okay, cool. I might have to jump on that one. Let me see how I feel. I'm at, I'm mentally exhausted right now from everything, so I may and six o'clock. Yeah, six o'clock my time. My son, I think, wants to practice some baseball, so I may take him outside and throw some batting practice. You know, get my mind off the computer for a little bit. Yeah, it's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again. Thanks everyone for joining, and we'll see you on the next episode. Have a good one. Bud. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast with Philip Wiley. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.